Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. Hey there, podcast listener. Jonathan here. Today's episode looks at an innovative approach to helping kids who struggle with addiction to drugs and alcohol stay sober during high school. Now, when I was first practicing social work in the mid-1990s, I was taught that adolescents could use drugs and alcohol with impunity, meaning nothing bad would happen. In fact, adolescents, I was told, was the best time for kids to use drugs and alcohol. Why? Well, because... Teenagers are healthy and resilient, and and if they did anything too stupid, their criminal records would get expunged on their 18th birthday. I told parents, look, if your kid's going to get wasted at a house party, better now than later. I now know that this is really bad advice. The brain is way more likely to get addicted during adolescence than adulthood. According to the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse, one in four Americans, that's 25% of Americans, who began using any addictive substances before 18 are addicted, compared to one in 25, that's 4%, who started using at 21 or older. So why is this? Well, in episode 90 of the Social Work Podcast, Larry Steinberg told us that the adolescent brain is set up to seek out risk and reward. And drugs are risky and rewarding. If you were a teenage brain and you wanted something that was reliably risky and triggered all sorts of reward centers, you'd be hard-pressed to find something better than drugs and alcohol. Now, this idea of addiction as a brain disease is going to come up later in the episode, but we don't really go into it in detail. So, Here are some ideas from the American Society of Addiction Medicine website about the mechanisms behind addiction as a brain disease. Drugs and alcohol affect the parts of the brain associated with reward, motivation, memory, and all those other related circuits. The parts of the brain that we think of as the reward centers include the nucleus accumbens, anterior cingulate cortex, basal forebrain, amygdala, and the Lin-Manuel Miranda. Just kidding about that last one. But I'm not kidding that the Hamilton soundtrack stimulates the brain's reward centers just like drugs and alcohol, which is probably why my kids can't stop singing it. So when someone uses drugs, it affects the way the cortical and hippocampal circuits and brain reward structures communicate with each other it actually triggers memories of prior use and creates cravings. And when we feel cravings, we do whatever we can to satisfy those cravings, right? Imagine feeling thirsty for the better part of a day. You would be singularly focused on quenching your thirst, even if that meant drinking water that you wouldn't otherwise drink, right? Dirty water, water from a cup that you didn't know where it was, all those sorts of things. Now, when the craving is for drugs and alcohol, and there are problems with impulse control, judgment, and the pursuit of rewards, neurologically speaking, this is a problem with your frontal cortex and all the underlying white matter, also known as brain stuff. Brain stuff, very technical term. Now, even though all of this stuff is going on in the brain, the good news 
is that positive peer and cultural and clinical interventions can be really effective in altering the course of addiction and actually have been shown to change brain chemistry. So that was enough about brain chemistry and sort of the addicted brain. Um, if, if you'd like to know more, the American Society of Addiction Medicine website at ASAM.org goes into much more detail about the neurobiology of addiction. Okay. So let's see, where were we? Right, high school, high school. Um, now, popular culture still promotes this idea that adolescence is the perfect time to party. Hit songs and music videos float around in a cloud of pot smoke and red solo cups and an endless supply of cheap beer. Remember Rebecca Black? In 2011, she released a video about a massive house party with underage youth, quote, looking forward to the weekend because partying is fun. Now that song, Friday, became an internet sensation and universally panned as one of the worst songs of all time. Later that year, Katy Perry released Last Friday Night, also about excessive partying. It became her fifth consecutive number one single from the same album and solidified her status as a pop star legend. And even though Katy Perry isn't a teenager and the song wasn't written about her experience as a teenager, she decided to make a video that places the song squarely in high school. Why? I think she realizes that if she did a video about uh, women in their early 20s who end up getting something on their neck that might be a hickey or might be a bruise and there were people passed out, all of these subtle references to um, binge drinking and possible date rape wouldn't go over so well. But she knows <laughs> that we idealize the high school party and we think of it as basically harmless fun. She also knows how to capitalize on a cultural moment. Just as Rebecca Black is getting death threats and viciously attacked online for her terrible song about a Friday night house party, Katy Perry casts Rebecca Black as the cool kid having the ultimate 1980s-esque house party. Rebecca Black helps Katy Perry's nerdy alter ego Kathy Beth Terry go from social reject to sex goddess. And just like that, Katy Perry's video flips reality. Online, Rebecca Black is a total social reject and Katy Perry is the ultimate cool kid. But in Perry's video, Rebecca Black is the cool kid and Katy Perry is the loser. Her pop genius sells us a fantasy that in a world with massive suburban houses populated by rich white teenagers, no parents, endless partying, references to date rape, binge drinking, vandalism, and even Kenny G, even the person who in real life is the joke of the party can become the cool kid. And isn't that what teenagers want? To be the cool kid? But here's the real deal. In the 1980s, the era parodied by Katy Perry's Last Friday Night, I was a teenager, and I did go to those parties. And I went, in part, because I wanted to be cool. In the parlance of the songs from Hamilton that my kids sing all the time, I wanted to be in the room where it all happens. Well, I'll never forget the party at my friend Chris's house, where this kid that I really looked up to did some really stupid things because he was wasted. And seeing a cool kid look stupid because of alcohol convinced me that if I wanted to be cool, I should avoid drugs and alcohol. 
I realize this is not the typical reaction. In fact, research suggests that about one in eight youth meet criteria for a substance use disorder, and 90% of Americans who meet the medical criteria for addiction started smoking, drinking, or using other drugs before age 18. In other words, the advice that I got when I first graduated with my MSW was wrong. The adolescent brain is incredibly vulnerable to addiction, and high school is a terrible time to excessively party. Okay, so we talked about the brain, and we talked about Katy Perry, right, which I realize is a little stretch for this, but thanks for sticking with me. But I did say that there were ways to actually change brain chemistry and help people recover from addiction. So what services are out there? Well, there's individual, family, and group therapy, and that's particularly useful if you're working with somebody who's a certified or licensed addiction counselor. There are mutual support groups such as 12-step programs, smart recovery, moderation management. There's formal and informal peer recovery supports. There are residential options, right, inpatient hospitalization, and that can be with or without detox. There's intensive follow-up in outpatient or partial hospitalization. There's sober living homes with various levels of supervision. And recently, and this is the point of the podcast, there are sober schools like recovery high schools and collegiate recovery programs. So in today's episode, I talk with one of the best people on the planet, Dr. Lori Holleran Steiker, distinguished professor at the University of Texas at Austin School of Social Work. We talked about the risk factors for addiction, adolescent brain development, how to think about addiction from a biopsychosocial spiritual perspective, why recovery or sober high schools fit an essential gap in the continuum of care for youth struggling with addiction. We ended our conversation with information about how you can bring one of these schools to your community and with Lori making an impassioned plea to join the fight against adolescent addiction. And now, without further ado, and I bet you thought I would never get to this, on to episode 105 of the Social Work Podcast, Recovery High Schools, an interview with Dr. Lori Holleran Steiker. Lori, thanks so much for being here on the Social Work Podcast and talking with us today. Can you set the stage and tell us what it's typically like for uh, teenagers, high schoolers, uh, and substance use? Absolutely, Jonathan. Thanks for having me today. I want to start by saying that uh, most adolescents can go through high school without a substance use disorder, that it's still a minority that winds up with the full-blown brain disease. That being said, the average age of onset has dropped to about 14, which is really, really young when you think about the span of time that it takes for an adolescent to have that full brain development. The research these days shows that it's uh, plasticity continues all the way until about the age of 25. So we've got babies using substances. And that is what usually leads to uh, kids leaning on the substance as a coping mechanism, as a medicinal uh, way of addressing depression or fears or insecurities in ways that 
kids without substances are able to move along in the developmental processes that are necessary for adolescents. So we've got some adolescents that are not being able to navigate their life experience in a way that is um, really tenable and, and amenable to uh, a happy and comfortable life. That being said, peer pressure, eh, there, it's, it's a bit of a misnomer um, in the sense that nobody's tying anybody down and saying, here, use these drugs. It's a much more subtle and insidious thing in high school so that there are what we call triggers for kids. There are the kids that are considered cool that are using. There are uh, parties where that's the predominant activity. There are um, parents who are using at home and sort of setting the stage for that. So I think in a lot of ways, it's the cultural shift towards uh, acceptance of drug use that is a problem for a kid who is predisposed because of the brain chemistry. A kid who's predisposed when they experiment, which is by the way normative, they wind up with this uh, compulsion to continue using regardless of consequences. And that's what we see in about, I'd say one out of four kids winds up with some kind of issue around drugs and alcohol or a problem with, uh, and one in 10 has a full-blown substance use disorder by the time that they leave high school. And so I think it's it's so interesting because like you said, there's this there are these things that the brain has to do yeah. <laughs> in development. And then there are the, the things we think of in terms of typical social development, like what's my group, like who are my friends, how do I fit in, all those sorts of things. And you're saying that this idea that kids get into school and then they're just pressured to have, you know, to use drugs. And that's what causes like teenage addiction. That That's kind of a little bit of a myth. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, when we look at the issue of adolescence and substance use, we always talk about the biopsychosocial spiritual model because it's every holistic aspect of self. It's the genetic predisposition or uh, the biochemistry related to that um, uh, potential addiction. It's blackouts and tolerance and all of those biological pieces that are red flags. And then the psychological piece, the sense of self, the, the self-talk and the way of um, uh, whatever their affect prompts in terms of the way that they view uh, themselves and the world. And that, of course, blends into social and how they're interacting with others, how they, uh, whether or not they have self-efficacy, do they feel like they'll be able to accomplish things that they set out to do. And the spiritual, uh, I think people make um, the mistake of thinking that we mean religious when we say that. It, I, I usually define it by saying it's it's how do you make meaning in the world. It's what you believe in in terms of, of how uh, the world works. And when you start using substances at such a young age, um, it's like taking Silly Putty. Do you remember Silly Putty where you put it down on a cartoon and you pick it up and as soon as drugs are involved, you start pulling and playing with that silly putty in the picture no longer even resembles what it did in the first place. And you don't, uh, these kids don't even know that their thinking has changed. So it's pretty profound. Um, now even the kids that wind up with a problem, Jonathan, the kids that whose parents are, are uh, not in denial and they, uh, which is pretty common by the way, and they see that issue 
uh, with their kids and maybe it's full blown, maybe there's some serious consequences, legal or academic consequences. Um, even those families, when they send their kids off to treatment, the most conservative finding says that close to 70% of the kids who go off to some kind of treatment and return to their regular old high schools go back to using within the first month. Some studies show closer to 80 or 90% of those kids uh, returning to that substance use. And the problem is, is that we're treating this chronic, potentially fatal illness as if it's acute care. And we send kids away, we say, we're gonna fix them and then they go back with all of these biopsychosocial spiritual triggers uh, and deeply entrenched ways of navigating the world with substances and we find that they're just simply unable to make use of whatever they've learned in treatment no matter how good that treatment was for somebody who doesn't remember what high school is like mm. right or maybe somebody who's listening internationally sure could you just describe kind of what a typical scene is in a high school that somebody has to negotiate? Sure. Well, there's the developmental piece, clearly. You're, you're a young person who is trying desperately to figure out who you are. You're brand new to abstract thinking, so you've gone from concrete to suddenly having layers and layers uh, to any decisions that you make or any perceptions of the world. Uh, you're shifting from your parent orientation to a peer orientation. So suddenly it, your fellow peers who are also sort of not having sea legs for li a life experience are your touchstones. And you're sort of stumbling through trying to figure out who you are and how you're different from other people. Because that's the main, of course, developmental task is individuation. Who am I separate from the rest of the world? Layered on top of that is a culture that is very often oriented around substances, but each culture is different. I can't uh, quintessentially say, here's what it looks like in high school these days with drugs. Some have kids getting high in the bathroom, others have very strict rules and the, they're getting high behind the school or before they come to school. There are others that are very anti-drug and yet drowning in alcohol. There are other settings still that are um, all about the drugs that can't be detected in drug tests because there's a lot more awareness and there's uh, drug uh, sniffing dogs in the hallways. So I can't tell you what a typical high school looks like in terms of this experience, but I can tell you that it is very rare to have a high school where it isn't at least an undercurrent, if not an incredible undertow. Um, even the kids that are feeling really, really uh, confident and strong in their sense of self tell me that there is a sense of, uh, of maybe I'm missing out because it looks from the outside to be so much fun to be involved in that scene. And there are kids for which it is fun and considered recreation. Uh, of course, illegal if it's an illicit substance. So there's always risk involved. But there are kids for whom, you know, they can do it with impunity. There are other kids where as soon as they're in, it's, it, the nightmare begins. So tell me how um, this recovery high school works. 
Well, okay, so now's the part that I'm excited about. The, there are solutions, and I, I think that it's just incredible to me the direction that we're going with youth and recovery. And we've talked for a long time about the horror stories, and the horror stories are still proliferated ad nauseum. We hear about the overdoses. We hear about the kids who are walking into schools with guns. We're, we're hearing about all of those big dramatic nightmares. And I think it chips away at parents' sense that maybe parents and community sense that there are some uh, real effective interventions, things that can be done. What we know to be true is that if a young person gets into the nightmare of an addiction and has even a modicum of willingness to consider some type of alternative, uh, what we find in their desperation is that if you put them in a setting that is truly a holding environment, a wraparound service for this youth that provides for all their needs, they don't just survive this, they thrive. We think that a recovery high school, at least in Texas, we've witnessed that recovery high schools can be a hub for all of the community resources for adolescents with substance use disorders. And the reason is, is that usually uh, the school itself is exactly that, with a primary mission of providing academic services with recovery support services to bolster that for the youth. Sasha McLean, who's the director at Archway Academy in Houston, would say, uh, we're Switzerland. We're not the treatment center. We're not marketing that way. We're not the alternative peer groups that may or may not have counselors and family therapy and all of those things. We're the kids' school, the safe place where they go from 8 a.m. to 3 or 3.30. Um, and then we can sort of assess what other uh, support services are needed for this kid and really tie them in. Um, so we do see it as a hub for the kid's recovery. So I love this image of uh, a recovery high school as being uh, like Switzerland, right? Like this safe place, this, yeah. this place they can go where they don't have to worry about the triggers right. that you were talking about, where as they're negotiating all of these normal developmental tasks, um, this is not a layer of complexity that's thrown onto them. Absolutely. And, and so when you have, when you have kids that have struggled with substance use and they're in this environment, what's it like for them? H how do people interact with them? How are things done uh, differently? I, I'm glad you asked. And, and part of me wants to say that I will not be able to find words to adequately describe this to you, Jonathan. I think if anyone is interested, they need to visit one of the recovery schools and experience it for themselves because I have worked in the addictions field for, God, 20-some years. I don't even want to add it up because people <laughs> may do math, and I know that that will equate with figuring out my age. But um, Ever since you were five years right. old. That's <laughs> right. Ever since I was five years old, I've been working in this field. And, uh, and I actually uh, have a lot of recovery in my family. I consider myself a person in long-term recovery. I've been around this a long time. And when I went to my first Association of Recovery Schools conference, which was held at a recovery high school in Houston, my mind was blown. The kids were so poised, so comfortable in their own skin. They hugged each other when they saw each other 
each other. But when they did check-in in the morning, they were all over keeping each other accountable and saying, I'm really worried about you and this is what that looks like. Um, they are laughing and having fun. They are putting their nose to the grindstone when it comes to their work. Now, there are some recovery high schools that are still all about dropout prevention. These are kids that have had, like you say, a very tough time uh, in their own high schools and in their own academic lives. So the schools, the part of the beauty of the schools being relatively small is that we can have a very individualized uh, program both academically and the formal and informal recovery support services can supplement their experience at school. Um, we do a typical school day so to, to, to the surprise of many people who come to witness recovery high schools um, other than the check-in in the morning and uh, and available recovery coaching when needed during the day, it really appears to be like a regular school. There's teachers. We have a hybrid model at University High School in Austin uh, where we have teachers on site and individual work, and they're doing a lot of their courses online as well. So um, we actually are uh, connected with a charter school. That's one of the models. So the um, UT Charter uh, provides our education and we can focus uh, on the recovery support services and partner with them in that respect. Um, but I think that the part that people don't expect is we have something on Friday called Friday Phillips and they are mostly orchestrated by the um, students themselves, by the um, uh, leaders in the school. They decide what they're going to do for Friday Phillips. And they're mostly fun activities. They're tie-dyeing t-shirts and uh, doing some service. Uh, I know that one of the schools goes to hospitals and uh, does random acts of kindness, just helps people carry things and brings flowers to folks and things like that. Um, so I think that the most important piece in all this if you could put everything in a colander and shake it, some of the things that, that stay in the colander, the big rocks, as some people describe it, are that these kids are having more fun, clean and sober, than they ever had high. The high was no longer a fun place for them. They were absolutely out of fun. And when they come here, they have peers who care about them, who know their experience. And the other big rock, is that they are not being judged for who they are. There's a recognition that these are kids with strengths and talents and all kinds of potential and also a brain disease that needs addressing for them to move on and navigate their lives in a successful way. So I think it's, I think it's genius that there is a place where kids can have experiences that provide them with more pleasure than the drugs. Because as you were mentioning before, brain plasticity and brain development, like we know that adolescent brains are wired for pleasure, right? Mm -hmm. They want experiences that will feel good. That's right. And and boy, drugs feel really good, right? That's right. You know? That's and right. so if you if there is something that feels better than drugs, then the brain's like, well, no, let's do the thing that feels better. Yeah. And that is a, 
that's a beautiful way to combat the drugs. Profound. Yeah, it's profound. Um, at what stage would you say to somebody, like there's a parent that's talking to you is like, oh, I'm concerned about my kid. And right. you know, at what point does somebody kind of qualify or would benefit from a recovery school like this? Yeah, I, I'm glad you asked. I mean, I, I, um, I do wanna say with all of the knowledge that we have about um, multiple pathways or roads to recovery, that there are some kids that will age out of this. There are some kids who will find that if they do yoga and mindfulness, that's plenty and that's enough for them, and others that will uh, find their passion or their love being at a sport or a career, and that will be the thing that fills them up and that allows them to move away from substances. But for the kids who have, I think the best cut point is that which creates ongoing problems is a problem, right? And so um, many kids come in and saying, I didn't get in trouble every time I was high, but every time I got in trouble, I was high. And so it's the kids for whom it is such a deep catalyst for their downward spiral. Um, many times it's the youth that need to recognize that they need something different. We never have a kid that's like, oh, I can't wait to come to a recovery high school. That's for me. I'll, oh my gosh, that exists. Well, I can't wait to get started. There's always ambivalence involved with it. I think that it needs to be a, a team intervention. I think parents need to say, let's be open with this and go see what it looks like. I think that's usually enough because like at our school, we have an executive director who goes out into the community and meets with uh, social workers and clinicians and schools to help them understand what it is that recovery high schools do. We also have uh, a director of recovery services who meets with families and with youth, gives them a tour, does a full assessment, and can really give an honest feedback as to whether or not this would be a useful place. Because the truth is, if that is not a kid that has an addiction, that would not be a good kid for a recovery school. We're not gonna take kids just to bump numbers because the whole thing is about having a recovery culture. And so at intake, they're not going to take a kid who's not gonna be a fit for the school. So I would say that the best way to navigate that decision-making is go see the school, go talk to the director or the recovery coach that works there and, and feel it out. See if there's any sense that this is the next right thing. So for those listening saying, I am desperately wanting a recovery high school in my community. Ah. What is their next step? Okay, so the first step is you go to the website of the Association of Recovery Schools um, or the website, I'd say and, as opposed to or, go to Transforming Youth Recovery, which is an agency that supports recovery schools both on the high school level and the collegiate level. They have something, they have done a bunch of research and there is something called an asset map. And you can actually look at a map of the United States and see where the recovery schools are and related resources. So that would be the first thing. 
you may not have to reinvent the wheel in your community. There may be one that exists, and um, we're just at the precipice of uh, raising awareness. Uh, so you may not have heard of it. So the best thing is to find out if there's one that exists first. The next step would be if there is not something in your vicinity, get in touch with the Association of Recovery Schools and Transforming Youth Recovery because they are very interested in helping people get started. Um, Andy Finch is the faculty member who is doing the national research on this. He is also the advisor to the Association of Recovery Schools, and he's written a, a book on how to start a recovery high school. So um, I think that there are a lot of resources that are starting to pop up. Um, there are all kinds of new directions to go depending on the resources that you have available and the needs of your community. Let me talk about Austin just for a second. Um, we knew that this, the, the community of young people in recovery was still fairly scant, that there were some services that attended to these youth, but that for the most part, it was not that holding environment, not that wraparound service that we wanted it to be. So when we started talking about a recovery high school, the way that we knew it needed to happen was it was like a magnet. It drew people from the clinical settings, from schools. It drew parents who had lost kids to addiction. It drew parents who had kids with addiction. It drew the recovery community and the 12-step recovery communities. It, grew it drew people from the university. We couldn't believe it the first time that we had an information session. I remember saying to my husband, because we were holding it in my living room, go get bagels for the information session. He said, how many? I said, somewhere between 10 and 150 bagels. I had no idea how many people would show up for such a thing. And, uh, and of course, we had over 50 people in that first wow. information session that just was sent out by... Uh, I, I sent it to the people I knew and they sent it to the people they knew. So um, if it's meant to be in your community, so to speak, um, start talking about it. You know, play this podcast, ha have people listen to it. And if it's a community that needs it, the, the right people will start to emerge. In Texas, the model for recovery schools is that we make it mandatory for every kid who comes to our school to go to some type of alternative peer group after school and on weekends. There are a variety of models of alternative peer groups. Some are free and just offer peer recovery counseling and meetings to go to and social activities. Others are much more structured with clinical interventions available, individual, group, family work. And so um, the fact that when the kid, you know, eight to three is not gonna cover a kid's full life and they are not going to stay clean and sober probably if it's just that. Um, and to be very honest with you, you know, we think all of the pieces are important. Uh, there's some s studies that have come out of Houston. Uh, I think Dr. Bessin Bessinger was the one that was responsible for the study that showed that if a kid just comes out of treatment, about 10% of them will achieve some length of recovery of some sort. Um, if, if they have instead 
a recovery high school, an alternative peer group, a place to go after school where there's other recovering kids and peers and place to have fun, place to do homework, that safe place that sort of catches them after the school hours, and family involvement. The percentage of kids who are able to maintain some type of recovery jumps up to about 75%, which is astounding when you think about it. Wow. Just absolutely astounding. So, um, so we think that having all of those pieces in place is really um, an incredible thing. When we were starting our school, there were a bunch of decisions that had to be made, and we didn't make them perfectly. Of course, you're going to make mistakes as you go along, but you need to have some type of uh, plan for sustainability. These schools can be expensive. Um, there are different models. I know that a school was just opened in New Jersey, uh, the Lesniak School, that is actually funded with some state money. So there, there are new models of that kind of funding. Um, donors are the primary mechanism. Um, there are people who want to um, to be the foundation for schools like this. So um, that is absolutely a piece in this. Uh, the charter school model, as I mentioned, very often is a great partnership because it'll take care of the, um, the educational component in a way that is accredited and is going to really um, make your kids su successful. Um, the piece that we added in Austin that we think is um, going to proliferate as a new model for recoveries schools um, is that we have the recovery high school adjacent to the university i mean physically it is right up against that university now some people might say that's a little nuts right i, I mean well, yeah, what could be more dangerous in terms of a place for trying to build a recovery than a university which some people consider uh, recovery hostile well the way that we've navigated that is that we have at least at un the University of Texas, a very successful collegiate recovery program that has been going strong since 2004. So we have college students who are navigating that campus in a way that, that it is not just again, not just surviving college, but thriving as sober people in that setting. So what we've done is we've created a formal mentorship program between the Collegiate Recovery Program, the UT Center for Students in Recovery, and the Recovery High School. We actually get them trained as recovery coaches through the Communities for Recoveries grant uh, to train them. It's called the YAY program, uh, Youth and Emerging Adults. So they get the full recovery coach training, which is a certified training by the state of Texas. And then by virtue of going through the training, they commit to getting their hours to complete their certification by giving back to the high school. So mm -hmm. it is win, 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 <laughs> win, win, win. <laughs> Right? Yeah. Everybody that's involved gets something positive out it out of it. The kids at the Collegiate Recovery Center get this wonderful training, this certification that they can use in other settings, and an opportunity to give back what was given to them in a way that supports their own recoveries. The high school kids get to witness that, get to feel a part not just of the high school, but of the university recovery community. We have sober tailgates. We have sober activities, glow bowl at the bowling, at the union. We have all kinds of fun things going on. And 
we're building a solid identity for these kids that they are proud of. We took our student council to the rally in DC called Unite to Face Addiction, and there were thousands thousands and thousands of recovering people who showed up at that conference. I mean, at that rally, there were rockers in recovery like Joe Walsh and, and Cheryl Crow, and they were, they were loud and proud about their recovery. And so our kids get to see that it's not something that you walk around ashamed of. It's something you hold your, high, uh, hold your head high and say, I am a person that's getting well from addiction. And then there's people in long-term recovery that they get to see who have gotten well from addiction. And this is a really new stance for the field. I think we need to start to think about, we've been thinking about the illness long enough. And as social workers, it's our place, it's our responsibility, and it's our, it's our value base to say, what are the strengths of these kids? And how do we promote wellness? People are doing this, Jonathan. They're getting well from addiction. And so these kids even went to the day after the rally was an advocacy day. They went to the Capitol and they sat down with our uh, representatives and our legislators and said, uh, these are the services we need bolstered because this is what is changing my life. It's what's saving my life. If you wanna hear it out of the mouth of the kids, boy, if you go to the University High School Facebook page and you click on the video and you listen to these kids, they talk about how in regular high schools, they, you know, other kids are, their major stressor is, what peer group am I gonna hang with, what click? They say for, for themselves, they were worried about whether or not they were gonna survive high school. And here they are advocating for recovery in DC. It's just mind blowing, the transformation and their their growing sense of self. This is so inspirational. Um, and the picture that you painted, uh, I got this image of um, instead of, th you know, throwing these kids or, or making these kids be in environments during their high school years that are threatening, that that um, they, they're in these safe spaces yes. where they can uh, have the same kinds of joys and pleasures that maybe some kids can get in a high school setting, but, but is really something that people were getting in elementary school, like this sense of like, I want to go, I want to be with my friends. I want to, I want to experience this. I want to do projects. I want to do these sorts of things, which, um, isn't to say that it's not developmentally appropriate, but that it actually, uh, provides a safe enough space where, where kids can be creative and explore and do those sorts of things. Well, you know how the drugs and alcohol tends to interrupt the developmental trajectory. And so people that get into recovery as adults a lot of times say, here I am in this 40-year-old body with a 14-year-old uh, sense of self. And so what's nice is we get to fill in the gaps pretty early um, where they get to get back on track so quickly uh, that it's actually beyond back on track. They're, they're given this new 
vision for their life and their self that they're able to really get their arms around. Um, we've had two graduates, uh, sober graduates. We're very, very excited about uh, the fact, I mean, we just opened two years ago. So of course, uh, we serve ninth, 10th, and 11th and 12th graders. So um, one of the kids who got clean and sober at the high school is living in a sober dorm at Texas Tech and is navigating college in a way that he practiced while he was at his recovery high school. Um, through transforming youth recovery, we have we know which colleges have supportive environments for our youth. So we can actually use this as part of our wayfinding, our, our advising of our students in terms of where that they will feel most comfortable as college students. So we are paving the way to higher education and to lives in recovery in multiple ways. And you know, as you mentioned, kids going off to college and the program, the YAY program through UT and the connection, um, to me it just puts an exclamation point on how for kids we need to think about uh, their health and well-being long term because if we think of adolescence as extending to age 25 then to say okay well our responsibilities end at high school graduation misses the mark because at least in terms of brain development and other things then they're still adolescents, right? They're not. Absolutely. <laughs> and so what you're saying is that if you have a university, and you're not talking about setting up uh, sort of sober programs in universities, but but that's actually part of no successful continuing recovery because you can't set a kid up for like no four years of recovery and then say, and now go to the number one party school in the nation best of luck to you. Absolutely. And and we really, you know, I've been the faculty liaison to the Center for Students in Recovery, and I think that that is the most natural partnership in the world, and that if we really are going to look at where strategically we'd like to build recovery high schools, this model of having them adjacent to a university is really, I think, um, I think it's smart because we have you have all kinds of potential partnerships. We have a social work intern, a master's level intern who comes to the school and builds relationships with family, does some group and and is available for uh, hooking kids up with services in the in the community. We have a nurse practitioner internship that we've carved out. We have a marketing student intern at the university, which is a natural, right? Um, it's uh, kind of an exciting role for them to play uh, in college. We have a connection with undergraduate studies. We have uh, uh, a group called the Drug and Alcohol Peer Advisors that comes and helps with tutoring and with uh, philanthropy for the school and we even are, have a connection with something called the Sanger Learning Center which brings the same uh, workshops to the Recovery High School that are available to college students. One called uh, Study Smarter Not Harder and one that's How Not to Procrastinate. So they're getting um, a lot of resources that are dream resources for, for high schools. Um, and I think the one other piece that we really, really know to be true is that with the stigma that is inherently wo woven into this uh, world of young people and recovery, uh, the 
reputation of a university being linked up with the Recovery High School and studying it. We are doing research at the Recovery High School and we're not just studying the kids' problems. We use the gains and we're part of the National Study of Recovery High Schools, but we're also adding on strengths-based mechanisms of studying these kids. Um, we're doing uh, recover, uh, an adolescent version of uh, the recovery capital measure so that we're taking a look at what is it that is working for these kids, not just what's broken. When you say capital measure, what, what do you mean? Uh, recovery capital is actually a measure that's been recently designed and validated that takes a look. The concept of recovery capital is what you gain from being in recovery and the activities that you're part of that enhance your life in recovery. So it's being connected with peers. It's reaching out for uh, a sponsor or somebody that knows how to help you navigate the world. It's are you avoiding uh, pitfalls like hungry, angry, love? only tired? Are you going to meetings? Are you staying healthy? Are you seeing a doctor? Are you? Uh, all of those are strengths-based measures. Uh, what are you doing to bolster your ongoing recovery as opposed to uh, uh, what are the factors that are contributing to your relapse? Uh, uh, I think those are important things for us to know about. We do trauma-informed care. We are aware that most of our kids have some form of dual diagnosis, um, but I think that it's important to focus as much on what are those kids capable of and what are they doing on a daily basis that fills in the gaps in their life experience that allows them to be stronger every single day. I have learned so much from talking to you today. You know, the way that you talked about uh, what, what it was like for students, you know, typically in a high school and some of the struggles, both developmental, uh, you know, spiritual, biological, social, all those things. Um, this innovative approach to addressing addiction and recovery in high schools is, I think it's fantastic because we so often get stuck in, oh, there are not enough like treatment centers. And oh, how do we get the kid to treatment centers? When everybody knows that when they come out, they just gotta go back to school. And what you're talking about is, no, let's talk about what their daily lives are like. And the connection to colleges, and the connection to advocacy and and helping these kids really find lives worth living if i can borrow a phrase that we use a lot in in the suicide prevention world and so i just it, these ideas are just amazing so thank you i really appreciate that jonathan that's a great summary of what we've talked about um, and i think that it has to be said that there are kids dying of addiction at rates that we can hardly get our head around. And when they have a place that is safe and joyous and full of love, they become our future in a way that you can't even imagine. And so I wanna say to anyone that's listening, if this hasn't touched your life already, it's going to one way or another, and you're gonna want a recovery high school there for the kids that are drowning. And it's my hope that you'll reach out to the resources that exist. I am absolutely open to taking phone calls, emails, whatever's necessary. I am delighted to come visit places. So please, make me useful. Thank you.
I'm Jonathan Singer, and thanks for being with me today for another episode of the Social Work Podcast. If you missed an episode or have suggestions for future episodes, please visit socialworkpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our online store at cafepress.com slash swpodcast. To all the social workers out there, keep up the good work. We'll see you next time at the Social Work Podcast. Thank you.